0: and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake Districts. I'm here today in autumn in the Westmoreland Dales with author, illustrator... And our host for today's talk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. (laughs) Hello, David.
1: Lovely to be back again. We always love being together because it's a great opportunity to rekindle our enthusiasm for a magnificent county. And yes, we're back in Cumbria.
0: We are, yes, So after last episode's traverse of the county boundary. But actually, we're not too far away geographically, are we, Mark? No, indeed, We've, we're actually
1: in Westmorland Dales. Uh, we mentioned those uh, at the beginning of the last uh, episode, but of course, uh, the Westmorland Dales, which are part of the Yorkshire Dales National Park, cover the Howgill Fells, the Orton Fells, and we are at Orton itself.
0: Orton, a tiny little village. It's got a chocolate factory hasn't it Mark? I think that's how lots of people know it. Absolutely, it's the ultimate chocolate box village and it's got a fabulous little
1: church there which is uh, whitewashed and I don't know many whitewashed churches.
0: Now we're doing something rather different today Mark. Uh, We're not going to go for our normal walk partly because the weather's looking very sketchy and in fact it's been pouring with rain, very welcome rain I have to say all morning. But it's also unique, this podcast, for another reason, which is, towards the end of each podcast, you ask our guest, don't you, for their Cumbrian hero or heroine. And a few episodes back, we had Dr. Julia Aglumby talking to us about commoners and the historic commons of Cumbria. And she gave, as her Cumbrian hero, our guest today, John Dunning. A
1: man who has a great connection with this landscape farming roots embedded in the Westmanlandale landscape this is his country he loves the history but he's founder of the Westmorland services and so many travelers to the Lake District and through up into Scotland they're ever so grateful for all this wonderful respite on a long journey
0: yeah I mean there was a time wasn't there in the UK where going to the service station which is this tawdry affair weak tea and fast food of all kinds and then a service station began life on the M6 near where we're standing now, which totally changed our expectations of what was possible. And that business has gone on to have four different stations now and also RegEd in its portfolio of businesses. Hugely important employer in Cumbria, uh, an absolutely visionary business as well, buying a lot of local uh, food, supporting hundreds of local businesses and um giving jobs for local people basically it's a wonderful story john is a towering figure in cumbrian life in farming circles and very thoughtful in some of the many challenges facing farming but also our communities and perhaps how business can interact to make our agricultural uplands sustainable which is one of the big challenges really for our age and is particularly pertinent right now
1: Well, we met him earlier at the southbound services and it was very generous of him to invite us for a cup of coffee. But then he said, come to my home. And so that's what we're doing now. I'm in a congenial environment of a, a farmhouse in Orton and I'm in the company of John Dunning, a significant person in these parts. I wonder, John, could you give me a little bit of an outline of your connection with this village and setting?
2: I'm now retired and uh, for most of my life I've been a farmer uh, in this upland area. It's an upland parish. The whole of the parish is less favoured area is a grassland area, doesn't grow anything else now. And uh, we diversified uh, out of farming, but remained farmers, into motorway service areas because the motorway service area was built on our land and we were able to take the lease of it. I've been involved in making a living from farming and making a living from diversified activities, but also I've been involved in the future of this economy by being a member of Lake District National Park, the Northwest Development Agency, and various other bodies, such as the Cont- Countryside Commission, which had some bearing on the future of the area. Like a lot of families, we've been been in this part of the world for a long time. Just looking back in recent history, my grandfather was a farmer, a yeoman farmer in this parish, he was a breeder of rough fell sheep and shorthorn cattle and fell ponies. He was also a, a dealer in them because uh, you, you needed a dealer in every parish pretty well because getting things to market, a distant market, was quite formidable in those days. Where was
1: the local market? Well,
2: there was a local market in Kendall, a local market in Kirby Stephen, a local market in Penrith and a, a local market in Appleby as well. But even those were some considerable distance apart. You were travelling either on horseback or walking. So, your grandfather was very much into trading. Your father, how did he fit into that scheme? Well, he'd, he'd served through the First World War, and being one of four boys, there wasn't uh, a need for, for four to remain farming. Two of the brothers, father's elder brother and himself, um, went into the motor trade which was an infant trade, just beginning at that time, 1920, and remained in that for 35 years. Father's first love, of course, was farming, and he he was quite keen to get back to it, and I followed him in that role. You went to Newton Rig, and did your dad go to Newton Rigg? He went to Newton Rigg um, as a young man. In those days, Newton Rigg had 12 boys there, as students in the winter and 12 girls in the summer, but <laughs> ne'er did the <laughs> trade. seasons.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So the investment from the garage, that instinctively went into
2: acquiring land? Yes, father was keen to acquire land and, and acquired land uh, throughout his working life, and that is what uh, provided us with a, a start in farming. So the family moved to Orton. How do
1: you remember those early years?
2: Well, we moved here in uh, 1955, after I'd been at, at Newton Rig, a green start for me, and father retired. We began with 60 acres, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a dairy farm. We started off with cows, milking cows, and, and it was a gradual process of building up our herd from a few cows to eventually 150 cows. What
1: breed
2: were they? uh, Frisian. Oh,
1: right.
2: And a flock of sheep.
1: So were you aware of the changes that were going on in the population in this area?
2: Yes, I was. I was very much aware from the beginning because in those days, um, young people were involved in the young farmers' movement, which I became very involved with, talks and debates and the whole discussion of the future of farming. I was particularly interested in why farming here would be at something of a disadvantage against farming in in good lowland areas, where they had level land and could mechanise it easily, and had a choice of enterprises they could pursue. I was very aware that we could only pursue livestock enterprises, and that increasingly it would change from being the mixed farming which it had been before the war and after the war, to a much more concentrated purpose of breeding cattle and sheep. Mm. And ancillary enterprises like pigs and poultry and other things sort of dropped out Mm. and the farmer became simply a farmer of ruminants who uh, was increasingly dependent on that shrinking agricultural breadth which he had originally monoculture in mm. a sense mm. we had seen uh, since the war during the war as well a considerable loss of people on the land and that loss was progressing very quickly uh, by the 70s we'd lost about a third of our agricultural workforce uh, in the uplands and uh, and that was a headlong decline Mm -hmm. which continues today.
1: There was a time when there were wallers, teams of wallers moving around the landscape. There were lots of people who moved farm to farm, sheep shearing and all that kind of thing, and that was diminishing.
2: It was. And there was a lot of cooperation, perhaps even more than teams moving about. Farms came together for gathering, for clipping, for haymaking. They all collaborated. That collaboration fell away with mechanisation in times of real hardship, as there was after the First World War, if people in this parish, say, had a, a beast that was going to die, they'd quickly slit its throat and cut it up. And they'd take the meat round to their neighbours, simply to give them support, because they were so poor. A real hazard was that where people didn't have many livestock. If you lost one, you you were in, in trouble for the year. So people did collaborate and did give support to one another. Now, I I think since then there's been a a greater sense of independence and, and there hasn't been the same need in the period of prosperity. That's not to say it won't come again.
1: You also have a great passion for the outdoors and getting up onto the fells, just as I have. Uh, But you have a particular passage in your fabulous book which refers to a pretty defining
2: ascent of wild boar fell, a wonderful fell. I'd started uh, walking about the fells when I was very young and when I was ten I I went up wild boar fell and it was a very moving experience because uh, it opened my eyes to... A lot of things not only the beauty of the fells but just to the to the sheer wonder of the world Mm. we live in and uh, it was one of those uh, epiphanies I think that uh, that that stays with you for a lifetime and uh, may have come again and again but never with the same force as as it did to uh, that child at 10 years old um, alone on that hill and uh, I think that sort of experience is a one which happens for most people um, at some time, though they don't often talk about it. As Steinbeck said on one occasion that perhaps our place in the world is defined by the number and quality of those experiences, and uh, I think that's very important.
1: Well, I find farming history fascinating, but I also find actually landscape heritage riveting, uh, and this setting, because of course the Loon Gorge, there's the motorway comes through the west coast main line, but actually if you go back into time, and you really can go back, this was a, a vital conduit of travel from Orkney down to Salisbury Plain, as it were.
2: The original road through the Loon Gorge doesn't follow exactly the motorway, but because From Lowborough Bridge, from the Roman fort, the road goes on the other side, that is the east side of the gorge, and uh, travels down to Sedba by the Fair Mile. Um, Nevertheless, they're not far apart. Well before the Romans, it was established as a road and simply continued with the Romans placing a fort in the gorge to control transport and the movement of personnel and uh, armies. Uh, through the gorge. Mm -hmm. The Roman road split, part going over to to Appleby and part going over to Shap and Penrith, Mm -hmm. and uh, it split north of Lowborough Bridge.
1: And then you got subsequent from the Romans, you got this other travel, because the drovers kept
2: using the Roman roads, didn't they? They did. Livestock had always been moved from north to south, and moving cattle and horses and everything else Took place um, coming down from Scotland. There was a, a staging post uh, here at Tebe, which is now the lorry park of our HGV site, where livestock was changed and then moved on. It was the commercial point for livestock in that time.
1: There were so, drove roads everywhere,
2: basically, but,
1: and you were at quite a, a central point here in that sense,
2: mm. rather like the motorway and the West Coast yeah. Main Line. Everything focuses on this area because everything to comfortably travel on its feet had to travel down through the gorge Mm. through the Tibi Gorge right through to the days of the Border Reavers the Border Reavers was a chaotic period stretching over almost 300 years it's a a very torrid time because it devastated the economy Um, certainly of North Cumbria and the southern part of Scotland and uh, of course the Reavers didn't usually extend themselves beyond a day's march because it left them open to, to counter-attacks. And therefore, to have a drover's exchange point at t was pretty well outside the reach. I, like
1: many thousands of people, come up the M6 motorway and you come into the Loon Gorge and you suddenly feel the warm embrace of the fells And you feel, wow, we've arrived. Of course, that leads on naturally to the Westman services. Do you get any feel
2: yourself of this warm embrace? Yes, I think as you turn the corner, coming round into the the Loon Gorge, uh, you look at uh, at Fell Head and the range of those hills running back over the calf and all the ridges running up onto the tops of the fell.
1: All those elephants as Wayne. Yes.
2: (laughs) It's something quite special. So the day came
1: in the early 1960s when news was broadcast that the M6 motorway was pursuing a course that came through the Loon
2: Gorge and was heading north. Well, we knew of the possibility uh, quite some time before. Indeed, when Father bought that land, um, the pegs had already been placed in in the road as one of the possible routes which it would take and the debate was still going on as to which would be the route certainly didn't deter father he bought it and it was in 1965 four years after my father died that compulsory purchase orders were uh, sent out for the purchase of the land to build the motorway
1: so you have this land and you know the m6 is going to come through
2: what were your thoughts on this i think if you know that Government policy is taking you in one particular direction. Um, There's not much you can do um, towards either stopping it or bending it. (laughs) It's a tsunami, isn't it? What you have to do is you have to work out how you respond to it. Either you can respond to the immediate opportunities it throws in what's going to be one of the biggest, or undoubtedly the biggest, building contract which there's ever been in that locality, even bigger in many ways than the building of the railway. Or you can say, how do you try to defend your position, your farming and everything else against it? But I think the right approach, or the only approach really, was to say, how do we positively respond to this? So we now see
1: a, a, a remarkable service station, both northbound and southbound now, and the commercial goods facility in Bay itself. What was the germ of the idea...
2: There were already motorway service areas um, throughout the country. The tenders were sent out to all the uh, principal motorway companies at that time dominated by Trust House 40, Granada and Ranks and one or two others. And they all sent back to say that uh, they weren't interested. That could have been encouraged as far as the, the bidders were concerned by the fact that the... Civil servants in writing out the invitation to Temda said that part of the purpose in putting a motorway service area, a full motorway service area at T was to absorb the 170-odd people who would be made redundant on the closing of the T Bay junction, the closing of the T Bay station, and the closing of the bank engines that historically had pushed the steam trains over shapfell um, all of that meant quite a lot of redundancies and the motorway service area companies read this and said, look, there's nobody lives up here. It's the most sparsely populated part of England. There's going to be no business much there. We don't think it would be economic to build a motorway service area there. So none of them were prepared to tender. The chief engineer, a chap called Barry Padgett, um, came to see me and said that uh, we cannot, whatever leave a length of motorway almost beyond between Lancaster and and Carlisle without services because people for a variety of reasons have to stop. Therefore, we're thinking we'll put a a smaller service area at T-Bay and uh, we want to put it on your ground. And uh, I said, well, if that's what you want to do, you'll certainly do it. You won't bother to, to ask me. You'll simply tell me. Um, but I said, what you can do for me is uh, you can keep me advised as to how the discussions grow and what your your decisions are. And he was very good. He kept me fully informed and uh, I was able to ponder on what it would consist of and how to respond to it. You were a farmer. Your whole culture
1: was geared to the rearing of stock. Uh, So suddenly you've got this opportunity. There were large companies who were rejecting this opportunity and you were thinking well I actually could join in and
2: put a proper bid in and I could probably make this work. It was clear to me that I had nothing to negotiate with I hadn't much intelligence and I hadn't much skill and I hadn't much money. The only thing that I might have if I was very fortunate I might actually have the lease. It was on my land It therefore made it a possibility that I could go for. There were other things we could do as well, and I made some serious research into the kind of business that it would get. The interesting thing is that the professionals in the business didn't do that work. Yes. They didn't do it. They'd sort of done a a guess. They could guess if they wanted to, because there were volumes of fuel being delivered into the county. They had no idea how much was domestic and how much was through traffic. They didn't attempt to divide that. So I did a lot of quite diligent search to see what, on that length of road, the petrol stations were doing in through traffic as opposed to domestic traffic. Mm On that basis, I could establish the fuel throughput, and on the basis of the fuel throughput, you could make some reasonable guess as to what the catering and and retailing um, throughput would be. And the interesting thing was that when the thing was built and going, that first year of business was almost exactly as we predicted. So the day
1: comes in spring 1972, A delegation of MPs roll up to formally open the motorway and uh, the services
2: are in action. It had been quite a few steps between having the lease offered and actually getting to an opening because in addition to that lease we had to have an operation which was professionally manned, properly financed, properly designed. The first one was to find a working partner and over a period, we made a, a partnership with uh, with Burkitts, the bakers of Penrith, um, whose directors were about the same age as us and were known to us. So we had connections there. My partners were thrifty people, as we had been. They had found business no easier than we had. On that basis, the business could thrive because we took little out of it and put much back into it. And uh, we were confident we could make a good business where other people didn't. And uh, it grew steadily from there. So the first day that the doors open and people start coming in, was there some kind of feeling then? The feeling was we got there. um, Because there had been an awful lot of battling with the department. Officials, I suspect, in the department, left to themselves, would never have in a hundred years, given it to a peasant like me. (laughs) um, They'd have wanted people with proper commercial credentials who could come along and present themselves. I think it taught me that, uh, that more things were possible than one had imagined. And what it did for me particularly was open my eyes to the fact that around me, in this community, in this farming community were people every bit as able, certainly as well-educated, certainly as hard-working as I was, who could have done this sort of thing. Um, it may be that not many of them had this thing that my father had, had been able to cast his mind 20 years ahead to see what the picture would be then, but... Nevertheless, the potential was there for them to be a much more resilient, more successful, more imaginative economy than we were living in or do live in today. And that's the tragedy of our story.
1: Well, we're here in Alton, of course. It's now within the Westmoreland Dales area of Cumbria, but part of the Yorkshire Dales National Park. Includes the Howgills... Can you describe the Westmorland Dales bounds of it and what its characteristics?
2: Well, the Westmorland Dales today constitute 28% of the Yorkshire Dales National Park, wow. which is a big chunk. It a
1: good quarter. Uh,
2: it's a beautiful area. It has some of the most wonderful landscape in the Yorkshire Dales National Park. Mm-hmm. The Malastang Valley is quite exceptional. The Howgill Fells. Have tremendous qualities in that they're big, these deep valleys running through them, very steep sided valleys. The particular geology of this area is one of, of shales, which are metamorphosized into great wrinkles, which provide very steep sides.
1: And with no roads basically going we, through the
2: heart we, of it at all. No, but but lots of lots of packhorse roads. Yeah. So you come across these packhorse roads and say, where were they going and where were they from? Mm-hmm. Because settlements were different mm-hmm. at other times, and so these packhorse roads have always been leading from one settlement to another. Mm-hmm. And packhorse roads were very clever in that they were always devised for the modest slope which was required to have a mercilessly packed packhorse mm-hmm. able to get over the hill. And they changed course very often because in deep soils and wet soils they very quickly forced themselves into a very deep ditch. Mm-hmm. So these these um, packhorse roads often changed course simply to make them passable.
1: Yeah. The Western Dales extend over the Alton Fells beyond the Howgills Wonderful limestone outcrops, uh, castle folds, all there. That's rich in geology, in flora and history. Can you give me a bit of an expression of uh, any of that
2: in Smardale, all that wonderful country? Well, Smardale is a, an interesting geological concept because it is, is, it, it's, a, it's a shaft of uh, a valley which cuts through a hill to get to the Eden. <laughs> it's a beautiful valley which is almost entirely devoted to wildlife these days. Yeah, and it, it has rare butterflies, it has all kinds of uh, fascinating fauna and flora in it which, uh, which attract a lot of people. It comes out of the Ravenstondale Valley yeah. and Ravenstondale part goes into the loon, the head of the loon is in Ravenstondale so if you're on a one of the ridges of green bell yep
1: the source of the loon
2: yep. <laughs> the source of the loon goes down that way uh, do
1: you pronounce it ravenstone dale or Rasendal?
2: rusendale uh, yes the locals will abbreviate every long word <laughs> in the english language and uh, so that's been done over the years everywhere <laughs> where this dialect pertains very interesting how ravenstone dale Got its name because there was um, a raven. There's Crosby Ravensworth, for right. example, yes. and uh, Raven Swart was a character of the Dark Ages, mm. who was very influential in in these areas and written about largely in historic novels. I think because um, there, there's very little record in that period. With well, a name like Wild Boar Fell, have you got a hint to where that might have derived in culture? I think it's more than a hint. But it was, for many centuries, a legend that the last wild boar um, was killed on wild boar fell. And uh, there were some picturesque ideas as to as to what it was killed by, but the story was that pertained that it was killed by a giant oh, of who fought with the fierce tusks of the wild boar and eventually slew it to become a hay hero. And that was just a nice piece of... Uh, of legend, it is very sad in a way that historians don't pay attention to legend, no. because it's not history until it's written down, and history is usually written by the by the winners. I'd always been fascinated by this story because around the the rocks around Wild Boar Fell, for example, there are lots of hideaways where where these creatures could have lived, and of course, in earlier days there was a lot more woodland, and uh, in the days when we lived it kirby stephen my father was church warden there for all my childhood they put a new um, heating unit in the nave of the church and uh, it meant digging a room underneath the nave and in doing so they unearthed several bodies that had been buried in the church as was more customary then one of them was a very large coffin stone coffin with a very large skeleton in it, between six and seven feet. And in the coffin with it were the tusks of the boar. No. Nobody's quite certain who it was, but they believe that it was Sir Richard Musgrave, which was a local knight from, clearly then, based on Musgrave. It's one of the interesting things, certainly about this part of the world, that we're dependent on so much legend because things weren't written down, except in church circles in the Dark Ages, and uh, um, therefore there's nothing believed. But there's a, a writer in the county called Frank Cruthers who wrote um, several books on, on Cumbria, and he pointed out very emphatically that in the south of Scotland and Cumbria, there are more than 160 named sites connected to King Arthur. And he would very powerfully contend that you cannot have that body of legend which is still has the respect of local communities that could have existed without there being a reality behind it. Mm. Arthur Church at Longtown, for example, mm, yeah. sitting in the midst of it yeah. all. Yeah. It is incredible the weight of it that there is, and uh, I do get a bit impatient with academics who will take the truth of a story written down by the winner, which may be completely untrue, whereas legend, which has pertained in the folk memory of a whole community for a thousand years, is dismissed.
1: And uh, I love the name Orton itself, which means over
2: farm. What would it be over? It was known as Scar Overton, so the scar is over from the Eden Valley. It was a very isolated area because in the days before mechanised transport, you came by horse. Yes. Any wheeled vehicle could hardly get here. Even for a long time after the turnpikes, you couldn't get over here easily because the roads were were bad and of course with the turnpikes they had to be maintained by the parish they were in there was quite a lot of road for this small parish to to cope with (laughs) and so it was quite important over from everywhere but not quite anywhere you know
1: well we talked about some of the landscape characteristics and the legend of course with uh, King Arthur and um, the last boar Um, Can we talk a little bit about the character of the people themselves?
2: Well, the history of the population here is quite turbulent, really. It was Celtic when the Romans came, and the Romans dominated it without changing it and didn't even make it literate apart from the church. And the Romans departed, and then, of course, there were the Anglo-Saxon invasions, and that changed it pretty completely and then we had in cumbria not uniquely but very forcefully the nordic invasion which was a, a peaceful invasion mm-hmm. and settlement mm-hmm. it that was overtaken eventually by the normans but it was somewhat delayed it were never cumbria was never in uh, in doomsday a lot of parishes were dominated by norman uh, lords who never Took part in the parish affairs at all. Mm. Feudalism was supposed to be a two way thing where the Lord defended its people and the people paid loyalty and, and military service and rents to the Lord. Places like this were so far away. The Penningtons uh, held this parish for a great many years. Well, they're at the other side of the county and I don't suppose they would ever be here. The people here had very little leverage over their own affairs. Mm. And when, following uh, the Reformation, we, we had the opportunity, in Queen Elizabeth's time, the manorial rights here had been sold to traders in London. Things don't change much, To the they were on offer. The parishioners bought it at a very high price. I mean, it, how they found the means to buy it, I don't know. But to get their freedom from both church and absentee landlord, they were prepared to pay a lot of money. And it's interesting that when the fell did go up, that is when the second enclosure movement, the parishioners, that is the freeholders of the parish, set two lots of land aside to provide an income for the vicar so that they no longer paid any tithe. Oh. These were quite visionary people.
1: Well, the tea services were in place, they were going very well, but back on the farm, your instincts were very much... To sustain the farming business within the context of the setting, I suppose you were quite a pioneer in the fact that you saw regenerative farming. You were ahead of the game, really, in
2: that sense. If we go back to the post-war period, we had the 1949 Town and Country Planning Act, and that started the sort of embryonic start of uh, of the countryside. And countryside movement and that built steadily but at the same time the primacy of farming continued almost without challenge till the 70s and by that time the national parks were very well established in uh, 1970 I became a member of the Lake District National Park and what I recognized then was that this was a movement which was to be taken very seriously because it impacted on farming and the idea of maximum production. And we had to reach an accommodation between farming and conservation and public recreation. And I spent uh, six years trying to bring that together in the Lake District, which had tremendous opposition by people from both camps, and it would take a lot of years to try to make that better, and it, it isn't sold yet. But there are those who believe, and will continue to believe, that they've got to try and make a living from farming, and they've got to have farming that produces food that they can sell, and that they can take a margin out of that to keep their families and so on. I believe still that there is a real solution between these, but in the hills, as opposed to the lowlands, Agriculture has never been very profitable, but it'll be even less profitable because the dominance of recreation, landscape conservation and wildlife conservation is going to be predominant, meaning that the returns from agriculture will be much less. But at the same time, it does mean that in areas like the Yorkshire Dales and and the Lake District National Park, the scope for enriching the recreational experience of those who come here is enormously unexplored. Much of it has been taken forward. But there is so much more to do and so much more we can offer. And that can be offered without doing landscape damage and without forcing change in directions that, that are not publicly Accepted, And the way it's plugging along is that policies are dictated from Whitehall, which has an inadequate understanding of what happens at ground level out here. And the voice of the locality is little heard and less and less heard. You see people with strongly differing points of view and
1: opinions, access, be it tourism, be it conservation, be it farming. Are there good examples of where some of these things come together that represents
2: a good way forward? I've been trying to make a contribution to this coming together since 1970 and uh, have been significantly unsuccessful. All the initiatives with which I was involved, the upland management experiment in in the Lake District National Park, as soon as I left the National Park... It was uh, thrown out. It remained the view of both of both lobbies, the farming lobby and the countryside lobby, that each of them should win. And it was very significant when Fred Peart set up the North Pennines Rural Development Board. You had this division and they both believed that they had the statutory dominance in providing for recreation, In the Ministry of Agriculture, they wanted to provide for holiday cottages and and campsites and caravan sites and so on to give additional income to hill farming. In the view of the national parks, and most particularly the view of the Countryside Commission, they wanted to be in control. They wanted planning control of those things absolutely so that anything with which they disagreed had to be won on appeal. It is this failure, It, it still goes on today, It's the tribalism of all of us. We're all guilty, but it's been impossible to bridge it. And why would the countryside lobby, having one statutory dominance of the whole situation with Whitehall, DEFRA, sitting with all the instruments of control and no reason to give any ground to anybody, no reason to give any ground to the community that lives here, why should they concede anything? But the tragedy is that this situation, as it goes on, will drive most of the existing culture and uh, reserve of skills and folk memory and memory of how things are done and were done out of the place and left with very few representatives at the end of the day. You only need to look at the Lake District to see that the whole of hill farming is regarded as unprofitable and therefore something that really can be dismissed. We have sadly allowed our affairs to be far too centralised in recent years and none of this appears like actually reaching out to the national parks, to Cumbria, places like this, Indeed, the whole process of bringing um, the regions into determining part of their own future, not all of it, part of their own future, particularly on the economic side, has made no progress at all, and uh, certainly in the uplands it has regressed disastrously.
1: So have you seen models of successful achievements in Upland areas elsewhere in the world? I think you've been
2: involved with certain schemes elsewhere. Well, yes, from the 1970s. For 15 years, I was involved with the CLA. I was a member of the National Executive. And uh, I represented them on the Confederation of European Agriculture's Mountain Areas group. The Alps, particularly, have had to deal with the problems of mountain areas. In my travels, I was able to look at the way that other European countries had really tackled the huge change taking place in upland farming. One of the most spectacular was Austria, which, when it regained its independence following the war, had 65% of its area was mountain area. And trying to to get that changed into something which could support its population was immensely challenging for them, because they had a subsistence agricultural economy, and they set about creating a competitive tourism economy which would compete with Switzerland and compete with Bavaria and places like that, and make their communities prosperous. Um, they did it by massive government intervention, massive training and leadership of those communities and the encouragement of entrepreneurship with uh, cheap, supported, guaranteed loans and massive infrastructural investment on the part of the state. That has been spectacularly successful and certainly during the the late 50s and 60s, the Tyrol had the fastest growing economy in Western Europe. But other parts have been similarly successful without making a lot of noise about it. Bavaria has been a very successful economy. I do give the example of a typical Bavarian mm. farm, which would have a farm which has perhaps been modified to meet uh, environmental Requirements, but has also introduced other enterprises onto the farm, which may be timber production and processing their timber, which may be tourism, which may be uh, adding value to other products of the farm, and so on. Um, but in addition to that, they've been very careful there to ensure that there were parts of communities which had the choice of occupation, which made the whole economy and educational system resilient. Uh, That is, there would be other industries in major towns which gave a variety of opportunities in management and work and more particularly in the professions as well, which meant that communities were far more retentive of their people and uh, far more self-sustaining than those here. In areas here, we find that... uh, that because we don't have any significant industries, you therefore lose the professional opportunities which would occur in a more complete economy. So... From
1: 1972 onwards, the services, uh, which was the, was it the southbound one was the first one or the northbound one? No, at Northbound was first. Northbound services first. And then you've got the uh, truck stop, but then the business is expanded uh, to Ragged, and uh, there's a services down at, near Gloucester, Cotswold services. So. The, the growth of the business is considerable. Were there high points and in, inevitable low points?
2: Well, there were lots and lots of high points. I mean, it's been great fun, tremendous fun, creating new enterprises. And, and, and the business of funding them and, and making sure it, you did it with reasonable security um, was tremendous excitement as well. We made mistakes in the development of of Regard, but others made, I'm afraid, greater mistakes. We got over that. With all we'd learnt on the road, it was possible to to develop Gloucester, having learnt an enormous amount from the successes and mistakes we'd already made. That was um, after I was seeking retirement and my daughter had taken over and... uh, and she, she was responsible for, for what happened after that, and, uh, and, and it has moved forward very well. That's been a fantastic conversation
1: there, John. I'd like to wind it up a little bit. The Westmendales have given you so much over these years. You love walking out, you go out with your dog, you climb the fells. What has it
2: given to you? Well, everything in life, really, really. Um, the fells are an absolute delight. I, I try to go out onto them weekly if I can. A fortnight ago I went up top of High Street and that was a, a wonderful day. And I've enjoyed the fells all my life. I used to enjoy climbing when I, was, when I was young. But most particularly I've enjoyed the community which we have in this area. It is a strong community which is devoted to the area. Our listeners have a A delight in quickfire questions, and we do
1: put in one or two at the end, just to maybe touch on something that you may not have commented on during the course of the conversation. What was your first Lakeland memory,
2: John? Going up Catbells as a little boy. I remember I was taken up there by a lady who was just 19. She was my teacher. I really adored that experience, and it made me love those Lakeland fells. Um, more than any other fells, really. Wainwright or Wordsworth? Oh, Wordsworth, yeah. He had a vision which no one else had. A red squirrel or rough fell sheep? Both. We've lots of red squirrels. You might have noticed here, we've red squirrels running about all over the place. Um, have you a favourite Lakeland food? We have Herdwick weather shearlings. Ah. Now, Herdwick weather shearling... Um, which has spent its life on the fell, but is brought to some better inland grazing, just to finish it nicely, is possibly the best red meat in the world. Have
1: you a particular Cumbrian heroine or hero, dead or alive?
2: I'm married to one.
1: (laughs) There we are. That's (laughs) fabulous.
2: Can you give me your perfect Lakeland day? Well, today, at the age of 87, my perfect day is a fine day on the high fells, um, just walking. Have you a favourite view? The viewpoint I described in the in the book, mm. from from the Nab of Wild Boar Fell, was one which I never f- forget because because of the occasion. But I remember too a viewpoint from Great Gable. As a lad, we'd just done. Toffert Wall on the end of the Napes. And I remember sitting there at the bottom of, uh, of Toffert Wall and just watching the sun go down over Snaefell on the Isle of Man. Wow. It was alive again.
0: Well, a fascinating conversation, diverse conversation, covering a lot of ground there, Mark. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, still remains the most inspirational thing for me is that somebody brought up in farming circles sees this amazing opportunity and just thinks, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to go for this.
1: Yeah, he, he was very careful. He asked the right sort of questions, the right people, mm. kept the whole thing on a steady keel. And they always had bright ideas that were appropriate to the setting
0: yeah and also really interesting isn't it to delve quite deeply into his obviously very considered thoughts about making upland economies work in a sustainable way we live in a a wonderful county here uh, and I mean not a day goes by where I don't feel fortunate but underneath the surface there are a lot of challenges and one of the big challenges is an economic one particularly as we start to see, really, this next big challenge to those who are caring for the land. Yes,
1: as John was mentioned, everything's been centralised. The local visionaries, they're being ignored, so that people aren't feeling empowered enough to come up with fresh ideas, to grasp the future, and to customise it to the given environment to hold the community together to sustain things business-wise and community-wise. He's shown us the way and we need to find a new generation of pioneers and the government need to devolve that power down
0: to the grassroots. That's what he's very strong on, isn't It's trusting independent entrepreneurial people locally who can see this change through. And I mean, you know, John was never going to say it himself, but from my point of view, his business encapsulates what he was arguing for. He's lived that change in a way, and if we want to see a model of what we can do that brings together these disparate groups into a a sustainable business that supports both farming, landscape, and good jobs, the business that he founded showcases exactly what can happen. I also found it fascinating his insights into how other similar countries Around Europe, in particular, have managed this process because we're not unique here in the uplands of, of the UK in having a tough, marginal farming landscape to try and make sustainable, are we? No, clearly not. No, they're all the same building
1: blocks, the same obstacles, the climatic difficulties, the mm. social challenges, the mooselier problems. They're all here as they are in other countries. It's just the political will
0: can't argue with that um, we've had some postmark. Okay. just just one in a rather meagre post bag for today <laughs> but this is uh, Border44 who I think has been in touch before Hi guys, I love the Swaledale episode, we visit there every year for a week and do the walk from Thwaite to Muca, or Muca <laughs> I think it was, uh, to Keld and back along the Pennine Way to Thwaite for refreshments in Keerton Guesthouse Wonderful scones Brilliant they say <laughs> just at the top of Swinnergill, there is a cave with a waterfall running over the top where Catholics used to hold services in times of persecution it is now my annual lunch spot it is called Swinnergill Kirk and Mark will know that Kirk is Norse for church mm. <laughs> um, PS you have to look out for it it's not obvious were you aware of this Mark?
1: Uh, I've heard of Swinnergill Kirk not been there but uh, Helen Guy did refer to it to us at one point. I don't know if she mentioned it on the actual podcast, but she did uh, in casual conversation, I remember.
0: Right, so that's uh, something we need to go to in future. Before we go, I'm going to mention John's book. Um, now, it was a limited print run, so it, it's not widely available at all, but wonderful book, Westmorland Yeoman. Um, which talks about some of the life story he's covered today, but also some of the issues that he cares about.
1: And that's hayloft Publications
0: Limited. Yep, that's right. The other thing to mention is the Westmoreland-Dales Landscape Partnership, uh, which John is chair of, You can find more information about the fantastic work that's being done there. It's lottery funded um, and it's a partnership between various partnerships including Friends of the Lake District Uh, and you can find that via the Friends of the Lake District website. There's all kinds of talks, there's heritage walks, they're doing some fantastic work with apprentices locally and they're also actually doing an extension of the Pennine Bridal Way. Did you know that? Is that coming through this way? Oh, Yeah, 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 because it, it kind of got half finished, didn't it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> kind of went to the howl and then just disappeared into the bog. Like the so they're, they're continuing in it, I think, to its new and final resting place. Wow.
1: Yeah, well, it's uh, this is horse country, as, as John mentioned. Yes, it uh, is. And the fell ponies and so on. Uh, it, this is a great landscape to walk on, to ride on, to cycle through. Uh, it's a soothing, magical landscape. Uh, I'd recommend it to anybody who doesn't know the Westman Dales. Forget the Lake District just for once. Just come here and really love it.
0: Some final housekeeping then. If you've enjoyed this episode, uh, there are 59 previous ones, Mark. No, 58. <laughs> 58 previous ones at www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social media, Mark. Oh, at Countrystride1, Facebook and Twitter. And that's it from us for today. From autumn in the wonderful... Westmoreland Dales, we're bidding you farewell and we'll see you on the next Country Stride.